This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today is a woman whose style I have admired for a very long time. To quote the fashion journalist Jess Cartner-Morley, fashion director, stylist and curator Lucinda Chambers has the kind of style you just can't buy. And like many women before me, I've certainly tried. Lucinda has worked in the fashion industry for more than three decades. For 25 years, she was fashion director of British Vogue, as well as creative consultant to brands that ranged from Prada and Marni to H&M and River Island. Five years ago, Lucinda left Vogue in the kind of blaze that will be familiar to many midlife women who, intentionally or otherwise, put a bomb under everything. Looking back now, am I pleased? Of course I'm pleased, because I'd never have started the things that I started. It was an amazing career change. She went on to co-found Collagery, a digital platform that curates frankly lovely things that range in price from the pretty affordable to the pretty much not. To be honest, I took one look at Collagery's site and I might as well have just handed over the keys to my bank account. Lucinda joined me from her beautiful toasty TV room on a chilly January morning to tell me why being pushed out of Vogue was a blessing and the joy of embracing huge change in her 50s. We also discussed the difference between drive and ambition, why you really can't be stylish if you're not comfortable, and how to put some colour confidence in your wardrobe. This is really exciting for me because all those kind of, all those many, many fashion years. Did we sit next to each other? Do you think we sat next to each other on a show across the catwalk? Possibly, Ooh. possibly, but I would have been much too scared. <laughs> much too scared. And I was such a fangirl of your 
immaculate style or not absolutely the anti-immaculate style. Yeah, I don't think I'm immaculate. <laughs> Your very own version of immaculate. Yeah. Can you, before we get going, can you tell me, um, or just as we get going, tell me a bit about where you are because I can just see your beautiful room over your shoulder and your fire which looks so toasty. I know it is toasty. I am sitting this room has had lots of incarnations so it was the playroom of my three boys so it was filled with lego. Actually I think I've kind of like still got the lego colors there. Um, <laughs> oh yes red and yellow yeah. <laughs> yeah and now it's um and now it's our tv room but it does have a fire which is amazingly toasty and gorgeous yeah. Yeah, it looks absolutely lovely. How old are your boys now? 35, 30 and 25. Oh my goodness. Mm. My goodness. Are you a granny? No, I'm the only one of my friends practically who's not. It's quietly excited, um, (laughs) I'm hoping, but now it's getting to a point where, okay, I think a bit of a move on could be. be (laughs) But you've got to carry on being a cool mum and not put any pressure on them. If I was ever a cool mum, but (laughs) put any pressure on them. No, no, absolutely not. Um, and I need to know what you're wearing because I was, I was hoping for something very, very Lucinda. But you're wearing a black jumper, aren't you? I'm not wearing a black jumper. I'm we- actually I've got oh, all the food groups on at the moment, which is very collagery. So I'm wearing a kind of it's a lovely colour. It's a kind of brownie maroony sweater from Uniglow, and then a kind of huge pair of earrings, which my ears are never without, from a sort of new brand actually called Micho that we've just discovered. And then a very old pair of khaki, you know, khaki, khaki combat trousers. And then I've got draped behind me a a poncho because you can never be unhappy in a poncho. And so my trousers are from Toast, my sweaters from Uniglo, and this is Ralph Lauren. So, and then I've got a massive pair of trainers on, which is, which are on Collagerie, which is a discovery brand of ours. So yeah, I've got all the food groups, all the food groups, just how we like it, a mix up. Yeah, you're, it's the living, well, I was going to say you're the living embodiment of Collagery, but actually Collagery is the digital embodiment of you, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I guess that. Well, yeah, although we wear lots of different, you know, when we're doing edits, I always think, I always think of somebody else when I'm doing them. Sometimes I think of myself and I just put things that I would wear up. But if I did that over and over again, I think it'd become really boring. So, you know, you wear different hats and you imagine different characters looking at the site. And so, you know, sometimes I have my goddaughter in mind who loves pink and red and yellow. And then sometimes I have a friend of mine, Russell, who loves khaki and concrete. You know, so you you wear different hats on just, you know, to do the edit. So you're in somebody else's shoes. I think it's really great to put yourself in somebody else's else's body and imagine what they would like, not always what you would like. I think the, I mean, I would say this having like spent most of my life doing it, but I think the edit is really important, isn't it? And it's a thing that magazines used to do so well, but has kind of been lost a bit. Well, I don't know about that, but I think where we're very fortunate at Collagery is that, you know, we do a new edit virtually every day. So you always get another crack at what you feel is relevant and exciting and interesting. So, you know, and, I, and certainly when I was on Vogue, you know, it was hard to kind of weasel in something that was slightly less expensive or, you know, a high street brand. It was hard. So, you know, it's a wonderful playground, Collagery, because we can, you know, we started it because that's the way we shop, which is, you know, as I've just said, like a Uniglo jumper, a pair of toast trousers, 
Ralph Lauren and Discovery Brand, you know, that we didn't think that women dress only designer and only high street or only vintage. Actually, I've got a vintage belt on, I forgot to say that. Yeah, so I'm totally wearing all the food groups. So we just wanted to re- really reflect that in uh, in collagerie. So, and I think magazines, yeah, it's, it's harder because there's less product and, you know, certain magazines aim for a certain price point. So we can, you know, we can cover almost anything we want to, which is an incredible freedom, I think. Yeah, it's with hindsight. I mean, I don't know whether you found this, but I think certainly when I was editing Red. I loved Red. I loved oh, Red. Oh, thank you. You've made my day. You've made my life. I did, because you did interiors and fashion. I love that. Yeah, it was it, it was a joy to edit for quite a long time. But I think one of the things that I just, I don't want to say turned a blind eye to, I think I just made sure that I didn't notice, was how restricting some of that could be. Oh, you've got to put X on the cover. And this person has to wear that. And, you know, when you're trying to, like you say, you want to produce content for real women and you want them to be able to go and buy it. And you kind of, you've got a paymaster. And I think ultimately for me, that's why I left. Is it? Is it? Was it? Yes, that's really interesting. That's, that's quite punchy. I mean, I think, you know, I think we were very privileged at Vogue. Definitely there's always church and state, you know, in everything, you know. But I don't think I ever put anything on somebody that I actively didn't like, you know. So I think there were certain sort of benchmarks. But sure, you had to look after your advertisers because ultimately they were, you know, paying your wages in a way. Do you think you had more power maybe as Vogue because you were Vogue? From outside, I would have said that from Red, we were more scared of them than they were scared of us. But with Vogue, it felt like it was probably the other way around that you had more power and influence because the advertisers wouldn't want to upset you, whereas they didn't care about upsetting us. I don't know. I never thought of it as power. You just would have a dialogue and a conversation. And, you know, we were very close to all the designers and the brands. So I think there was always, you know, continuous conversation. But I don't think, I mean, in all my years of Vogue, you know, I was very fortunate I had very, very good editors who who almost had nothing in common. They were very different, except they did have one thing in common, which was an absolute belief in the magazine that they wanted to produce. And I don't think that's a power trip. I think it was, you almost have to have that in order to make those kind of quite important decisions at the time, like who you would have on the cover and if they were relevant and if they were interesting and the editor that I worked most closely with them for so many years was Alexander Shulman and you know she she had an incredible as a sort of normal woman you know she was very much in the real world and I think the women and men that she employed also were very much in the real world in terms of that we never thought oh we're vogue we're floating above the clouds I don't think you know we were hard-working people who were just quite good at our jobs and wanted to make the magazine the very best we could but I don't think we ever used Vogue as a as a stick or as a power tool. I don't think we ever felt like that. Tell me a bit about how you got into fashion because you're not you're not a kind of a stereotypical Vogue Condé Nast person, are you? Because there are all those stories going around. Like pretty much everybody I know who ever worked at Condé Nast had someone in HR ask them what school they went to. And you're not one of those posh people, are you? So how did you get in? Well, it's funny you should say that because actually uh, one of my first interviews of Vogue, they said, who do you know here? And I said, nobody. And they went, sorry? 
<laughs> what are you doing here? Well, well, it wasn't so much that. It was like, you know, with a voice like yours, I know I've got a posh voice, you know, um, you must know somebody. And I didn't know anybody. No, and it was such serendipity because I never grew up being very ambitious or thinking that even actually thinking I'd have a career at all because I was pretty mediocre at school, probably below mediocre, actually, below average. Uh, didn't pass any exams necessarily. My parents got really fed up. And, I, and I'd and i had the same boyfriend since I was 16. I just thought I'd get married and have children and probably be a secretary. You know, I had no ambition at all. But I did go to art college, and that's a different story. But when I left art college, I was making jewellery. And and I was selling it at Camden Market and and at, and at a shop in Camden called Stark Naked. And and one day, I there was a pair of my earrings. And I, you know bought the Black & Decker and I was making it and making them in my bedroom at home. And one of the pair of earrings worked their way into a magazine called Miss London, which was a free magazine. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, yeah I remember it. it was good. And it was handed out on the tube. And a pair of my earrings were in it. And I, it was honestly, Sam, it was like a light bulb going off. I, It was sort of like a magical thing. Like how could something that I had made and shaved away and shaved away, you know, at the Perspex and at Black & Decker and sanding it, sanding it, could end up on a model. It seemed so otherworldly to me. I mean, we weren't a magazine buying household, you know, um, it was another another world to me. And I wasn't particularly interested in it, actually. But uh, my mother always was really passionate about clothes. And I used to make a lot of clothes and she taught me how to sew. But, and when I saw these earrings in the magazine, I thought, I held those and then they were in a magazine. There's a process. There's got to be a journey. And so I it was like a light bulb. And I thought, I've got to find out what that journey entails. And so I thought from here on now, every job I take has to be something to do with fashion. Even if it's working on the top, you know, the floor, you know, on the floor at Topshop, I made costumes for a theatre company. It had to have something on my CV that said, yes, she's interested in fashion, but I didn't know where it was going to lead. I just wanted to know the journey. And then I was working in Topshop and I rang up Vogue. I, I rang Vogue up. I didn't know where I got the balls from, but anyway, I rang them up, and and it was amazing because the head of HR answered the phone because her assistant was ill that day. She was a woman called Angela Simons, and she said, "Come in for an interview." Oh my god, that never happens, does it? I mean, obviously it did happen, but that kind of break—it's just one of oh those gosh, moments. Unbelievable. unbelievable! And she interviewed me, and she said, "You can't type, and you've never sat behind a desk, but there's something." She said, there's something about you I like, she said, but go and learn to type. So my mother and I got a book out of the library and I bashed out over and over again a business letter. And then I rung her up three weeks later. I said, I can write, I can type a business letter badly, but <laughs> I can do it. And she rung back about three weeks later. She said, I've got your job. She said, it's the worst job in the building, but it will get you in. <laughs> it was. It was the worst job. In the what was it? Secretary to the petty cash woman. <laughs> Were you any good at that? No, I was appalling. I was absolutely like um, bubbles. You know, I really was. I made all my, I thought everybody at Vogue would be incredible, you know, and dress extremely extraordinarily. And they all wore sweater dresses. And so I made my clothes <laughs> every, every, every night before I went in and they would always fall apart at sort of 5.30. I'd have my pants showing. But there was a funny story when uh, the, the petty cash woman, Lily Davis, she used to throw bios at me and go, you're not in the fashion room yet. 
And, oh, uh, but yet, the crucial yet. Well, I don't know if she even said that. I might have added that on. Um, <laughs> but she never went out for lunch. But once she did, and I lit up a cigarette, that shows you how long ago it was. Yeah. And uh, she came back in and I threw the cigarette over the partition. They were like all stud partition walls in vogue those days. And it landed on the assistant to the editor's desk. And then Miss Davis luckily went out and the assistant to the editor came in to the, my office with the lit cigarette and said, is this yours? And I was like, oh God, I'll just pack up my bags now. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she said, this is hilarious. I mean, luckily she was a smoker. And she said, have you met the editor? And I was like, no, I don't even know what she looks like. And she said, I want you to have a, I want you to have a meeting with her. We're looking for a secretary. And they hired me. I mean, crazy. That's incredible. So how did you get to move into fashion and and work for, because you worked for the legend that was Grace Coddington, didn't you? How did that happen? Well, I was secretary to the editor for quite a long time, for about four years. And I always went to like, I always went to everything. Like I sold Vogue at the weekends at Olympia, if there was a trade fair, I always put my hand up for everything. And I got to know a couple of designers, Wendy Dagworthy being one of them. And and I had been a secretary for a long time. And Wendy offered me a job in her studio. And I said to Beatrix Miller, who was the editor of the time, you know, I've been offered this job. And Grace had asked me to be, or asked Miss Miller if I could be her assistant for a long time. I think just because I look so peculiar. <laughs> and uh, not because of any skill that I had. And uh, on the Monday, Miss Miller said, don't take the job. And on the Monday, I was Grace's assistant, which was incredible. And she was phenomenal to work for. Yeah, I, I learned everything uh, that I know from her, I have to say. I think I read some, I can't remember where I, I read it, but I read somewhere that you said, Grace, that she looks at everything like a child without mm. judgment. Mm. I absolutely love mm. that. I think because she had no kind of formal education. So she would look at everything, whether it was like a sort of Matisse exhibition or Vermeer or or a new photographer with a kind of childlike eye that had no baggage, no history, no context in a way. So she could see things, yeah, like, like a child, like a, with, with absolute clarity. And she taught me, you know, it was all about the preparation. When she was on the shoot, she knew she drew everything out on a huge um, block of paper in front of her. And it was all about the preparation and the, and the graft. And the, and the, you know, making sure that every single detail was in place. So her shoots, she hardly had to say anything on shoot. She's a very shy person, Grace. So it was extraordinary when you got to the shoot, she almost didn't have to, you know, she'd had the dialogue with the photographer. She had the dialogue with the makeup artist, the hairdresser, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing. Um, so it was, it was remarkable to, to, to train with her and see the process that it involved. But yes, I mean, so everything came to her fresh. So ideas for shoots could come up, come from anywhere, really come from anywhere. Do you think you had that in common with her because you're not, uh, you know, very traditionally, don't have a traditional big education. And you're, I noticed that your mum was a craftswoman and very you've awesome. kind of brought that eye to it in a way, haven't you? It's funny because my mother always said that she wasn't creative, but I think she was incredibly creative. I mean, we both we both went to my, my parents separated when I was quite, you know, quite I was eighteen, I think, at the time, and 
we had moved like 18 times before I was 17, I think. And my mother would always do up houses, but herself, she'd wallpaper, build dry stone walls herself, garden. And that element of transformation, like wherever we were, she would make it look very different. So she was never afraid of change. She loved color. She loved doing things in different ways. And she could make things, you know, we sewed, we made stuff all the time. And actually recently I was mosaicing a table out of all the broken plates that I've amassed. And as I was sort of routing the table with a lollipop stick, I thought, I did think of my mother. I thought, this is what I learned from my mother, this thing of making stuff, you know, I'm very happy doing that. I love, I love making stuff. And we both needed money. So that's why she suggested, let's both go to art college and get a grant. And we were both spectacularly untalented in that department. I mean, I think we made our portfolios on the kitchen table. And I do think pasta shells were involved and knitting wool. <laughs> Potato prints. Yeah. yeah, I think not as sophisticated as that. <laughs> but she got into London College of Printing because she needed to learn a skill in order to earn a wage. So she wanted to become a bookbinder because she knew that she could buy the tools relatively inexpensively and and then she discovered marbling. And in, in those days, marbling hadn't been done for 200 years. And she found a way of doing it. It took a, about two years to, to perfect it. And then she went on to write 10 books for Thames and Hudson and lecture all around the world into her 70s. So it was a real, you know, it was amazing to see her take control and power and do something which she loved doing you know, very, you know, relatively later on in life. Yeah, so she was, was she, what was she, late 50s when you both went to art school? Yeah, she was the very late 50s um, and I went to Hornsey and was terrible and realised just how untalented I was. But I discovered the Perspex room and then made the earrings. So, but she, yeah, she went and, um, yeah, she was teased a lot actually. They called her Mrs. Cheney Walk because she had an even deeper posher voice than I did but she really needed to learn something and she did so she did exactly what she set out to do that's really fascinating isn't it and really impressive at that time so do you think and I'm I'm massively extrapolating so do feel free to say no Sam I don't think that her reinventing herself in her late 50s and picking herself up and going right I'm I'm gonna do this now did do you think that informed you at all when you had your massive career shift when you left Vogue? I never thought of it like that, but I suppose not being afraid of change. And as the Americans say, you know, it's a growth opportunity. Yes, I think, I think probably that thing of that something will come up or you'll think of something, you know, it's not so terrible. Nobody's died. Possibly. Yeah. I think, I think not being afraid of change, even though it's funny, I don't think I'm afraid of change. Although, you know, I stuck to that one job for, you know, 25 years, 37 years, I was at Condé Nast. So, you know, but every shoot was change, you know, so um, change came up all the time and you had to kind of, you know, pivot. And, but yeah, probably I got a lot of strength from seeing that, you know, it's not catastrophic. You've just got to have a fertile brain. I think she had a very fertile brain. I, mean, I don't want to dwell on it because I know how annoying it is to me when people interview me and they only want to talk about the things that I used to do, not the thing I do now. 
How did that feel at that time? Because like you say, you'd been at Condé Nast 37 years, you'd been at Vogue 25, you were, from an outside perspective, you, your aesthetic was Vogue in the same way that I'm sure Anna Winter would hate this, but to me, Grace Coddington's aesthetic was American Vogue. How did that feel for you emotionally, professionally? I was very sad, but I didn't feel it was a catastrophe. And look, I think it was quite a long time, you know, before the new editor was appointed. And so I did sort of play in my mind that, you know, when somebody new comes in, they want their own team. So I did, you know, I did have that going, not exactly buzzing in my brain, but it was a possibility, you know, and you have to face the possibilities. But on the other hand, you just didn't know. So I think I was sad for the fact that, you know, I had fantastic collaborators, you know, and the possibility and the thought that I wouldn't get to work with them again made me sad. But I think on the whole, when it came around, I had sort of entertained the idea that, you know, I might be pushed out. And, but, you know, now looking back on it and for quite a long time, I think, thank goodness I was, because I would never have left. I would not have left my own accord. You know, I love the job. I love the job. I didn't do it. But then um, looking back now, am I pleased? Of course I'm pleased because I'd never have started the things that I started. So it was an amazing career change. But at the time, you don't think like that. But I suppose and it sounds a bit corny, but I was just so grateful to have done something that I absolutely was passionate about for so blooming long. You know, it was incredible. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I mean, when that all happened, there was this real, like, received wisdom that 
you know, the privileged white fashion establishment was out and the new was in. How did that feel since you very much are not and privileged? You know, I mean, you had a fantastically privileged job, but you got there. So how did it feel being cast as this, I don't know, privileged slacker? (laughs) I know, I know, I know. Well, I don't think any of us took it personally. I think it's sad that people didn't see how hard we worked and how we weren't all like that and that we were really professional, you know. But I didn't really dwell on it, if I'm honest. It's very easy to look from the outside and make make those assumptions, and I don't blame people for for making them. Was it the truth? No. I think we were hardworking women. And actually, an interesting thing, Sam, I think always, and I used to tell all the kids who would come into the office or would get a job, I'd go, we're not Vogue. You know, we don't live a vogue kind of a life. We all push a trolley around Tesco's and we all wipe a baby's bottom and we all, you know, we don't give these sort of dinner parties. And, you know, I never felt like I'm a vogue person. I just happened to hang my hat on that peg for however long they wanted me for. But, you know, I don't think any of us wanted to stand up and say, oh, we're not like that. We're not, you know, it was just, you know, and it comes out. And I think, and I think, you know, we knew who we were and we made amazing, you know, friendships and extraordinary life bonds with people who, who knew exactly how, how it was. But, um, you know, I think it's easy to throw stones and, you know, and, and that's, and also I think in a funny way, the pendulum has to swing, you know, in order to make and create changes and give, you know, it has, the pendulum has to spring, pr- swing pretty dramatically in order to make those changes. And of course, change always has to happen, has to, you know, you can't avoid it and it, and it should, you know, it's an essay thing. Do I think there were casualties? With that pendulum, yes, I do. I do. I mean, I think, you know, I think of photographers like Patrick de Marchelier, who was wonderful and, you know, never worked again. And I think that was very, very sad because he was a great photographer. And all change is, you know, on the whole, pretty, pretty good. So you now, you know, uh, in your early 60s, running effectively a tech business. It's not only a tech business, but tech no, is a tech heavily and involved. It's heavily involved. Yes, yes, yes. I know, I know. I think I was the last person to have a computer at home. Yeah, times <laughs> have changed. Times have changed. It's it's yeah, it's exciting. So we touched on Collagery earlier, but tell me a bit about it. Tell me a bit more about the the how it came about. Well, it was interesting actually, because again, it was a sort of probably the second light bulb moment that that we've had, but. Serena and I, we worked across um, each other's desks at Vogue for far, oh, over five years. And Serena was executive fashion director while I was fashion director. And you know, she was always very much on the, the brand side and the business side of Vogue. And we were catching up after we had left Vogue for a coffee. And we were talking actually about where we would look now for our inspiration or information, actually, because you know, and I've touched on this before, we were very privileged, Vogue, you know, brands would come to us, designers would come to us, photographers would come to us, we just had to be on receive mode, you know, we just had to be open all the time to receive the information that we were so lucky to to have. And so Serena and I were talking about where would we get that from? And, you know, we're pretty obsessed about interiors as well as fashion. Always throughout my whole career, you know, I'd worked for high street brands as well as, you know, luxury brands. And, and it's the way we shopped. And we were thinking, there's nowhere. And Serena's half my age, you know, and we've got very different tastes. And we were like, 
it's a bit like being a stand-up comedian. We were like, well, if you need this and I need this and we're not so weird and wonderful, there must be hundreds and thousands of women who also need that in their life, just a way of shopping that's not anxiety-inducing, the endless scroll, you know, somewhere beautiful to go where it could be a mood. You know, you maybe you're looking for a pair of black sandals, but actually you end up by buying a lampshade because that's how the mood's taken you and that journey. And so we said, let's start this, you know, if it's not out there. And then from the business perspective, you know, we'd also noticed this at the tail end of Vogue that, you know, a lot of brands were putting their advertising into a digital spend and not in a print spend necessarily. And so from a business perspective, it made sense. And then from a creative perspective, it made total sense. We just looked at each other and we were like, we've got to start it. I mean, you're so, you're so right. When you were talking about women, the anxiety that many women feel around shopping and, and getting dressed. I wrote a book about midlife and then started the podcast and a, a newsletter. Um, and what I hear over and over again from women is that they've lost their confidence in how they dress, that I don't know whether you experienced this, but I certainly almost felt like overnight woke up and felt like the things that had always been fail safe for me no longer were because my body had slightly changed. And you really see, I really see a lack of, well, a lack of, a loss of confidence, even in women who were really confident before. How would you steer those women who feel, are starting to feel like they've lost their way a bit style-wise? Because you've never lost yours, or you don't look like it. No, totally I have. And uh, I have in the past. And and I think, you know, I am the age I am, and I've probably never felt more comfortable. But because because I've had years of trying things out, you know, and I get it. And I think it's not only women of a certain age of my age. And look, I'm early 60s who lose their confidence. But I think young kids as well. I think, you know, my mother and I'm a great believer in trying things out. But I think, you know, that can be expensive and it can be not the way to go. I, th I think the advice I would give is big rule of thumb is you just can't be stylish if you're not comfortable. So comfort is really underrated. So if the heels are too high, if the skirt's too tight, if the trousers don't fit, you're never, you're never going to look stylish. But I, I sort of think a very good way of starting, not totally afresh, but, but starting anew is to work out what your color is. You know, for me that it starts with color and learn what your kind of base camp color is. So you know, a lot of people say it's black, but, you know, I've never gone for black because there's dusty black and there's gray black and there's black, black and there's blue black. So my I know my base camp color because it's sort of my eye color, which is muddy khaki. That's my color, you know, because friends have said it. Oh, that's the color of your eyes. And, and I've sort of worked out a uniform for myself, which is things that I feel very comfortable in that aren't extreme, like a pair of khaki trousers and a navy sweater something quite minimal actually and quite quite fail safe but then I do add in very personal things so like today you know I'm wearing a uniglow sweater that anybody could wear um but then I've got a pair of really personal earrings on and you know I put on a poncho little things can make that uplift and make it personal but you can wear very ordinary things you know, like a vintage belt that I'm wearing, just to make it a little bit more 
make it go with a swing. It's, that's really interesting because when you said the when you said about your style being quite minimalist, I was just thinking I have always thought of you as like an arch maximalist because of the bits and bobs that I put on top. So I can have you know base camp khaki, base camp neutral. It can be navy, all navy, you know, all navy and black. I think is always a winner. But then you just layer on the things that are idiosyncratic or personal to you or things that you love. And they make, you know, you they make other people think that you're a maximist. But actually, when you take all those off, you've actually got pretty, pretty um, sensible things on. Yeah, that's that is really interesting because I'm, you know, your classic colour coward, um, scared of colour, scared yeah. of scared of pattern, uh, did really rely very heavily on black and and jeans for a huge amount of my life, but reached a point now where black just doesn't work in the way I used to think it did. And you can get into a real rut, can't you? I think you can get into a... But I often think when I stay away, like if I'm on business or, you know, and I stay away in a hotel, I mean, what I have found really helpful, look, every, you know, because we all have to get dressed in the morning. So if that's an anxiety um, procedure, then that's not great. So, you know, it's often when you go away to a hotel and you distill that wardrobe because you've only got a small suitcase, you're packing everything in. My wardrobe's like a jigsaw puzzle. I know that every sweater will go with every skirt, with every pair of trousers I've got. They just will. So it's a bit of a no-brainer. You know, I know that that, you know, Club Monaco black boat neck sweater will go with that navy skirt, but it will also go with the khaki trousers that will go with the green trousers. And, you know, so I have a wardrobe that I really can swap in and out so that I don't have to spend too much time in the morning thinking about it. Everything, and it's a bit like being in a hotel where you only can, you know, pack six things but they've all got to kind of go with each other. So I do think of it, a, a wardrobe as a bit of a jigsaw. And then I hold on to things that are really, you know, amazing Prada skirts. That I've held on to so long that they've come back into fashion. I love that. So I do hold on to kind of, you know, I will make an investment into really special idiosyncratic pieces that are more kind of out there. That Then that sets you apart a little bit. But it's the handbag or it's the earrings or it's the belt. Yeah, it's not a crazy dress. It can be a crazy dress. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think the fashion industry has got a bit better at um, embracing older women? Mm, no, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> not necessarily, no. It's not no. great, is it? I mean, not much, not maybe so much behind the scenes or in, in front of them. I mean, there's been like really yeah, high profile campaigns with Maggie Smith and Diana Ross and whatnot. But do you think that's just a passing trend? I hope not. I think it's great. You know, I, I do see, you know, a lot more older women on Instagram, for instance, you know, who just completely rock it, but not in a kind of extreme weird way. Just, they just, you know, they just look fabulous and they're enjoying every second. So I do think that is a real game changer that women seem to be much more visible in that sense. So I think, yeah, I think, I think in that way, and it has changed and I think they have found a voice, but I think there's always room for improvement for sure, for sure. And I think, you know, I think also just having experience, you know, is important to fashion houses, you know, that, 
somebody could be exciting and put their own spin on it and bring something to the table with their experience. Have you got more or less self-confident, if that's the right word, I'm not sure that it is, as you've got older, more of yourself, if you know what I mean? I think so. I think I think I've always had quite a good core of where I am in the world, you know, and that's not about external things. It's not about what restaurants you go to or what dinner parties you have or what holidays you go on or what friendships you have. Um, I've always known, and I think that did come from my family, like our place in the world, you know, not in a snobby way or in a privileged way or anyway, you know, just working very hard and, you know, honing my craft in a, in a way. So I think I was very lucky in that, you know, my mother always used to say, you know, try everything out. And if you're going to make pizzas or eggs or whatever, just make sure they're really good, you know, and work away at it. So I think I'm not outrageously confident. I don't think I'm that, but I think I know where I sit, you know, and always at Vogue, I, and even today, I think I'm not necessarily the best at what I do, but I'm not the worst. I sit somewhere really comfortably in that middle ground. Um, and that's a really good place to be. And I've always felt that. What's What's next for you? Oh, my God. There's so much excitement. It's like no day is the same. And I think that's amazing. Like, I'm having a really exciting call this afternoon with a potential collaboration. Really hope that's going to work out. I think growing Collagerie and growing Colville to a place where more people know about it and more women find it and more actually growing a number of male audience find it. So I think, yeah, I just think putting it out there in the world and different territories and we're going to launch something in New York quite soon, which is exciting. Yeah, so there's no day is the same. I think that's really a wonderful place to be. Right, I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask at the end. Um, what is your emotional age? I would say that I am. I think I'm a very immature older woman. I think that's <laughs> I, am. I think I have a childlike sense of wonder that is quite childlike. It's you know that I'm curious about everything. Um, but I am my age. I'm 63, I think. But yeah, I'm quite childlike. Do you think, did you always have that childlike sense of wonder? I think so. I think I'm really curious. I, I do love finding out stuff and about people, about films, about photographers, about everything really, about product, about colour. Yeah, I'm very curious. I think curiosity is crucial, don't you? That... Yes, 100% just because you keep on moving. Uh, you're a big reader, aren't you? Give us a book recommendation. Oh, well, I've just finished a fabulous one, uh, Banana Yoshimoto, called The Premonition. Oh, yes, oh, that's just out, fabulous. isn't it? Oh, it's fabulous. My husband gave it to me for Christmas. I just finished that on the plane. Um, wonderful. I loved uh, And anything by Barbara Pym. Um, but that's the last book I read. I just finished it like a couple of days ago. Yes, I'm a big reader. I'm a big reader. Where do you get your your book recommendations? Ask everybody. Like, what's the best 10 books you've last read? Or what's, like you, Sam, what's the last book you read? And I love being introduced to somebody new. 
always give it a go. Well, the last book I read, um, and I don't, oh, I've put it underneath. It's propping up my computer. So I'm going to drop down. Um, um, And it's, the last book I read is The List of Suspicious Things. Oh, I haven't heard about that. And that's The Shift Book Club, Jenny Godfrey. And it's about a young girl who, growing up in West Yorkshire around the time of the Ripper murders. Oh, right, interesting. Um, So... And it's it's less heavy than it sounds. Yeah, it sounds as if it could be gnarly, but no, it's, it's not gnarly. Um, and then I'm just about to start reading the new Sigrid. I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Sigrid Nunes, the Vulnerables. Yeah, the Vulnerables. Okay, I'm writing that down. Which I haven't read yet, but people have raved about. Good. So wonderful. Fabulous. So that's good. So, um, what advice would you give younger women? Try things out. My mother always said that to me. Try things out. <sighs> Boyfriends, clothes, jobs. Just try everything out. Give everything a go. And reach out to people. You know, what's so brilliant about the age that we live in is, you know, people DM me all the time and I reply to every single one. Reach out to people that you admire or people that you think could help you out. Because for every 10 DMs you send, you know, maybe one person will reply. Don't don't be afraid of that. That wasn't in my day. You know, that accessibility is brilliant. Yeah, and I think I think that's true. You know, there's nothing lost if somebody doesn't well, reply. You can only say no or not respond. That's fine. We can deal with that now. Um, who is your old bird role model? So an uh, older woman who's inspired you? Well, I would have to say quite an obvious one, but she never ceases to amaze me, is Iris Apfel. Just because her... Incredible. Enjoyment of clothes, you know, is just... And it's like when I... But I would say, you know, I saw somebody on the tube yesterday. It was a woman much older and um, she was head to tail in blue. She had blue hair. She had a blue necklace. She was wearing blue. And I just love that sense of going for it. Blue is her color. Yeah. Um, you know, but I love people like Tilda Swinton. I think she's incredibly stylish. But I was at Vol just for her sheer taking pleasure in decoration. Because like dressing is just decoration. It's like houses it's it's all about just decoration uh what's your superpower well i asked my husband about this yesterday because i said (laughs) my like that i work so hard or um curiosity and he went no it's your eyes your eyes are your superpower he said because you just look at you can zone in on things you know if i'm in a car boot sale or if i'm in zara or if i'm in selfridges i just zone in so i would he i mean i'm not saying it for myself but he said yeah your eyes are your superpower for sure i would say my graft and curiosity (laughs) but that's three really good superpowers i think you're set with those and last one um how many fucks do you give I really thought about that, Sam. I thought about it last night as I was thinking about this podcast this morning. And I was thinking, I can't say I don't because I really do. I really do give a fuck about things in life. I do. But I don't give a fuck about status or snobby things or external things like I was talking about before. But I do give a fuck about... I once asked my therapist, actually, if I was a workaholic... I I had some therapy several, well, quite a long time ago. A couple of people who were very important to me had died and I was just at a bit of a loss about how to handle that. And I said to her, Trish, am I a workaholic? And she said, no, you're not a workaholic, but you have a high, a ridiculously high sense of responsibility. So yes, I do give a fuck. I give a fuck about the people I work with. 
about the companies that I have very, very high sense of responsibility. It was so nice that somebody identified it. It's like my husband saying, you're the most unambitious person I've ever met, but you're the most driven. And I was like, aren't they the same thing? And he went, no, they're completely the opposite. Oh, that's fascinating. And actually that's possibly why I married him because he understood me and I'd never understood myself. You know, I turned down like amazing jobs and I used to think, am I frightened? Am I worried that I can't do them? I'd be like, no, because I'm not interested. And this friend said, oh, said to my husband, oh, Lucinda's so ambitious. He went, she's the least ambitious person, but she's the most driven. And this friend Prue said, they're the same thing. And he went, no, he said, they're not. Lucinda is the most driven because it's something inside of her that drives her, but it's not for other people to think. That's so interesting. Yeah, the ambition is maybe an external validation thing. Yeah, it really answered a huge thing in myself. And I was like, thank God somebody has identified that because I've never been able to identify that. It was so useful. Have you been with your husband a long time? Yeah, 30, 30 odd years. So you don't need me to say keeper then? <laughs> no, it's definitely a keeper. Keep keep me sane. Keep me working. <laughs> keep me moving. Yeah. Keep me Thank moving you up. so much. Awesome. Um, Thanks for asking. I could talk for another hour now, all those things you've just said. Um, before I let you go, um, I'm trainer obsessive. Can I please see your trainers? Can you get oh, your yeah. foot up that high? <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like my conversations with India Knight and Times Fashion Director Anna Murphy. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras, and more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.